Hello, everyone, and welcome to Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host today, Susan Deneker of Steptoe & Johnson, PLLC. Along with bringing you updates and critical events happening around the world, we are also fortunate to have the opportunity to dial in our local ELA lawyers that practice on the ground in these jurisdictions and are working daily to help their local clients move through these difficult times. On the program, we span the globe and have received updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we are gonna be chatting with a member in Florida and a member in Missouri. Joining us today on the program are Scott Cole, shareholder at Gray Robinson, and Jean Paul Bradshaw, partner at Lathrop GPM, both of whom I might mention are members of the Higher Education Council of the Employment Law Alliance, of which I'm also a member. I'm really excited to have both of these gentlemen on today because they're going to be discussing an important topic that's very timely, name, image, and likeness, and how it relates to student athletes. Scott and Jean Paul, welcome to the program. How are you guys doing today? Doing fantastic. Thank you. Doing well. Well, we really are excited, and I want to jump into this because we've got a lot to talk about. So we're seeing it in the news media. What is name image likeness, which we see abbreviated as NIL, and what in the world did the NCA do that is rocking the sports world? Scott, you want to kick us off here? Sure, be happy to. So NIL is basically the elements that make up everyone's right of publicity. All of us have an inherent right to market ourselves and our images, our expertise, and NIL is something that professional players have been capitalizing on for quite a while now. When you buy a jersey in a supermarket or a, or a mall and it has a player's name on the back, that player is monetizing their NIL. And they get a cut of the sale of that sale of that jersey. And that is something that college athletes have not been able to do up until very, very recently, and specifically June 30th of this year. So until June 30th of this year, the NCAA prohibited players from earning uh, compensation for licensing their NIL. And this was done as part of the effort to maintain the amateurism component of college athletics, which really distinguishes it from professional athletics. But things started changing really a, a while ago, over a decade ago. Many of the listeners may remember a famous case involving Ed O'Bannon, who was a UCLA basketball player. He had filed a lawsuit against the NCAA and collegiate licensing company for using his likeness in a popular EA sports video game, NCAA Basketball 09. And in 2014, the federal district court ruled in favor of O'Bannon which caused EA Sports to stop utilizing his image or any other college athlete's image in their video games. Well, that sort of started the conversation rolling about, you know, should athletes be able to earn compensation from their NIL? And the NCAA started various initiatives over the next several years to look into the issue. And one of the things they did was they reached out to Congress and they attempted to see if Congress would do a nationwide law that would sort of set the standards for NIL so that everyone was operating under the same rules and no one program in one state would have an advantage over a program in another state. And at the same time, the NCAA also was attempting to get an antitrust exemption from Congress. 
neither of those efforts were successful. And I think the various states were getting frustrated as they continued to see coaches' salaries go up and players not earning very much money at all. And then they started on their own to draft up statutes which will allow players to market their NIL. The first state was California in 2019, but their law would not go into effect until July 1st, 2023. And then states like Florida came along and they decided their law would go into effect on July of 2021. So that really put the NCAA under the gun to do something with NIL. And so on June 30th of this year, the NCAA essentially waived its rule prohibiting athletes from marketing their NIL by drafting an interim policy. And, you know, the the restraints are off at that point, subject to state law provisions. And since that time, athletes have been going out and and trying to earn money off their name, image, and likeness. Well, I'm going to ask Gene Paul to weigh in here. Gene Paul, the floodgates have been opened, as Scott is mentioning here. So what businesses have come out and sought athletes to be working with them? And and what does this look like in terms of compensation? Well, really, the range of businesses is about as far as you can imagine. I mean, it's like any other product. You know, you kind of look at what sorts of businesses have organized themselves or marketed around sports. And so what we've seen early on are car dealerships, certain sorts of restaurants. I haven't seen as much lately or yet rather of apparel and clothing, but I think, you know, that's, that's a little harder to organize, but that's coming, you know, the, the, the name on the jersey. Athletes are, student athletes are limited in that, you know, they have to be careful. They can't use the school's intellectual property. So if I'm, as a, as a proud University of Missouri graduate, if I've got, you know, a football player who wants to put his name on a jersey, I can't also have the Tiger Head logo or some other image that's been licensed by the university. So I think the clothing and some of that's coming on down the road, but a lot of the service, you know, whether it's restaurants, car dealerships, any sort of business, pizza places, really it's limited only by the imagination. And it's going to differ from school to school as you look at what's been popular in a particular locality. And I'm sure we'll get into certain schools have certain boosters who may be more interested in seeking the endorsement or use of the image of a student athlete. And that's going to differ from school to school. Yeah, I'll add a funny story. One of the first signings by a college football player was the LSU quarterback, Miles Brennan. And he signed a deal with a local Ford dealership. And then right after he signed the deal, he broke his arm in a freak accident. And he's probably out for the rest of the season. So I'm sure right now, you know, the dealership is questioning the value of that particular signing, but you know, it's going to be trial and error for a while. Gene Paul, you mentioned that student athletes can't use the intellectual property of their colleges or universities. Are there any other restrictions regarding how these student athletes can license their NIL? Well, if you talk about how they license it, I guess I, the biggest restriction in my mind is one that's still out there from the NCAA. And that, that to me is going to be the biggest challenge for universities and student athletes going forward. And that is the issue of whether something crosses the line from being compensation just for, you know, this advertisement and crosses over into a recruiting inducement. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, for example, uh, I think we saw um, uh, there was a booster, I think at BYU, who said, gosh, you know, I'm really looking for, I'm going to find the the walk-ons, the kids that are coming on without scholarships. I'm going to hire them for advertisements and marketing and NIL. 
and then I'm going to pay their scholarship costs. Well, you know, when you say that, you're really just increasing the number of scholarships that are available for that school to give out. And so there's still, you can't have a linkage between, I can't say to a, a high schooler, gosh, if you come to the University of Alabama, I'm going to pay you, I'm going to hire you to do commercials. If you went to Baylor University, you're not going to get a penny. You know, clearly that becomes then a recruiting inducement. And so the pressure is on the schools, the responsibility is on the schools to self-report any violation, which means that, you know, they're going to be watching carefully. The student athletes don't want to lose their eligibility because some of their popularity, some of their ability to market that NIL, it's one thing if you break your arm, it's another thing if you've committed a violation and become unable to play. So that hurts you both in terms of your image, your value of your image as well as your ability to get out on the playing field and, and make a name for yourself. So I think the biggest issue is, first issue is that, the second issue I think is most of these kids, I mean, you think about the number of professional athletes who have gone through many of them, at least some portion or all of college, but yet they get taken advantage by advisors who you know don't have their best interests at heart. And so I think, you know, as kids look at how am I going to take it? How am I going to value this? How am I make sure I'm getting paid fair value? And also, how can I make sure that I'm not getting taken advantage of in some other way? So I see those as, at least for the student athlete, the, the two biggest challenges, making sure that it's not running afoul of rules and then getting the right sort of advice to make sure that they are not getting taken advantage of through the process. When Jean Paul, you make a good point. Now we have college athletes, right? Young people who probably don't have a lot of right commercial negotiation experience. This starts to look a lot like professional athlete negotiations, right? Because we're talking money. And in some of these instances, we could be talking about significant money. So Scott, can players use attorneys or agents to assist them in the negotiation process as they license their NIL? They can. And whether there are any restrictions on that is basically a matter of state law. The universities who came out early with their own state NIL statutes often put restrictions on how NIL would operate in that in their particular state. And so, for example, in Florida, the athletes can be represented by an attorney, but only if the attorney is licensed with the Florida Bar. And they can also use an agent, but the agent must also be registered under, under state law in Florida. And of course, when they use, for example, an agent, they can only use that agent to represent them on NIL deals. They cannot use that agent to attempt to negotiate you know, professional deals and, and that sort of thing. They have to be very careful in their dealings with these folks that it is limited to NIL. So when we have players that are out there looking right to, to earn money, to license their NIL, how do they go about finding a market for that? Well, it's, it's interesting. So a lot of businesses have popped up since June 30th of this year whose business is putting together potential student-athletes or actual student-athletes with potential businesses so that they can match up and, and do these deals. Those companies typically work in a digital environment. They will have an app on their cell phone both the athlete and the, and the business. So the athlete will fill in information on the app about you know, themselves and their athletic accomplishments, the number of followers uh, they may have on social media, which is very important. And then the people who are looking maybe to hire the athletes 
and go look for exactly the type of athlete they want to represent their business. And then through that app, they'll be able to make a connection. And then some are the old fashioned way, right? The local car dealership reaches out and, you know, calls a player and says, hey, you know, I love how you play quarterback. Can you come down and do a commercial or, you know, do a meet and greet with some of our, uh, of our best customers? So it's all different ways, but, but the athletes seem to really like the digital way of doing business. It's all high tech. We live in a high tech world, don't we? Well, Gene yes. Paul, talk a little bit about the role of the university here, right? Because this really alters the relationship of all of the parties here, right? We've had a standard for a long time with the amateurism rules of the NCAA. That throws us on the head. So what role do institutions of higher education have in overseeing this process as players look to license their NIL? Well, as, as I alluded to earlier, I mean, if the university is a member of the NCAA, then they're going to have obligations to make sure that the, the transactions that are taking place don't run afoul of the NCAA rules. And at least of the schools I've seen, most of them had really good, robust compliance programs anyway within their athletics department. And, you know, they've pivoted pretty quickly to coming up with procedures so that they're seeing every contract, every agreement that a student athlete that is on scholarship at their school or is playing at their school, even if they're not on scholarship, that that's coming across someone's desk and they're looking at it and making sure that from a valuation standpoint, as well as who's it coming from and under what circumstances, that that's all good. But most of them, and I think Scott kind of alluded to it, and, and I know a little bit of Scott's background. I know he was general counsel at large university. I'd be interested in, in how he would have viewed that sitting in, in his former chair. At a, uh, at a large school, but it's important also that they're looking out for their student athletes. So they're making sure that they're getting hooked up with the right people and not getting taken advantage of. So, you know, most schools take it very seriously if they're looking out for the welfare of their student athletes. So they're both trying to offer processes, procedures that, that protect the student athlete, but also protect the eligibility, protect the school's obligation to report any violations that they know of to the NCAA. The one interesting thing I was saying as we were thinking about this, the thing that's occurred to me, you know, I wonder to what extent that on down the road, particularly for a non-state school, if some school at some point, I mean, the, the degree of responsibility they take over looking at contracts and, and giving advice to student athletes, if some deal goes bad, does a school end up with some responsibility out of that? I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's well on down the road, but as I as, as somebody who's primarily in litigation, you know, I tend to think of litigation risks and it started making me wonder about that. And I, as I say, I've never sat in the chair that Scott sat in once and, and viewed it from that kind of holistic standpoint of the general counsel of a large university. But it seems to me there's a lot of things that we haven't figured out yet about this. Well, I've got to get to, you know, the million dollar question here, right? Show me the money. Is there any type of limitation or cap on how much these student athletes can be paid for their NIL. Scott, do you want to take that one? Well, that's an interesting one. So again, a lot of it depends on whether the athlete is playing for a school in a state that has an NIL law. Again, I'm, I'm most familiar with Florida, and there is a requirement that athletes not be paid more than, put this in air quotes, fair market value for the NIL, because Obviously, if you pay an athlete, if you're a booster and you pay an athlete 10 times what the fair market value is to do NIL, it certainly starts to look like, like pay for play or an illegal uh, recruiting inducement. And so 
they, they try to limit it to the fair market value. And of course, trying to define fair market value is a very difficult thing, right? So you probably, you probably know the real abuses when you see them, but there's going to be a lot of flexibility in determining fair market value. I can tell you that the businesses who are in this market have a very good sense of what the going rates are. And they are pegging that rate based upon really two things. One is success on the field. And then second of all, the number of social media followings that particular student athlete has. And the, and the more followers they have in social media, even if they're not a huge, huge athlete, could really increase the value of their NIL. That's really interesting. Let me ask this. So does this create an opening of the floodgates as it relates to all amateur sports? So Jean Paul, what about high school athletes, right? A lot of our listeners are thinking, hey, my son's a pretty good soccer player and my daughter is really great at basketball and they've got some followers on social media. They have to, right? Because they're on their phones all of the time doing something, right? So what about them? Do they stand to profit from, from this change? Understanding that they're not governed by the NCAA, but tell us what we can expect there. Well, I mean, they're not immediately governed by the NCAA, but if they're that good and they, they're going to play later on, that, that could affect them because the rules only apply to things after post-secondary education. But it kind of goes back to looking at the state laws and seeing what's permitted. And, and being in Missouri, I'm familiar with Missouri's law, which just went into effect a couple of weeks ago. And you know it applies only to post-secondary. So if you've got in our state, the Missouri State High School Athletic Association uh, or Activities Association, other schools have that. Generally, that's prohibited and not something that's permitted by certainly by the Missouri statute. I think most of the guidance out there says this does not help out that high school student. So they, their eligibility at the high school level may be placed into jeopardy. There's something, nothing illegal inherently about going out and getting, you know, so many cents per follower or hit or whatever the right measure is for an Instagram post or something like that. But it could endanger their eligibility at the high school level. And you know, most of this stuff really pertains primarily to post-secondary education. I think California is the only state right now that specifically allows high school players to, to make money off their NIL. But don't be mistaken in thinking, though, that NIL doesn't have a big impact on the high school athletes. You know, these universities are using their NIL mm-hmm. activities as a recruiting tool for high school athletes. And the, the more that the universities can say, listen, we're really set up with a lot of NIL opportunities, that that certainly makes them more attractive to the high school athletes. So NIL is having an effect at the high school level. It's just not a direct payment as it is at the college level. Yeah. And I think, I think a great example of that is the young man who was at South Lake Carroll High School in the Dallas area. He was the number one ranked recruit as a quarterback who was supposed to be graduating next year. He decided to graduate a year early and went to Ohio State. And it was all, I mean, he was upfront that it was done because he had the opportunity to make a million dollars or more in NIL. And so he actually, because he had enough high school credits on, graduated early and left a year early. So you may see that affect some high school players who may say, you know, why am I going to pass up an extra year that I could be making money? It's a really groundbreaking thing that we're looking at right now, this change that went into effect at the end of June. And Scott, you started off earlier talking a little bit about the history of NIL and how we got 
to where we are. You talked a little bit about Congress's inaction. What, as we look forward, do we expect that Congress may step in and try to regulate in this area? Well, that's a very good question. I know by my count, there are at least eight bills pending in Congress right now that touch in some way on NIL. I think ultimately something, yes, will will come out from Congress, what exactly it will look like, because they really span the scope from sort of, you know, just a general legislation on NIL to making college athletes employees. So they're all over the place and, and it'll require a lot of negotiations. But really, until there's a national standard, NIL is going to be continued to to be used as a as a recruiting tool. And I just think there's a lot of issues that can arise, a lot of temptations to maybe abuse the NIL process if everyone isn't playing on the same field. Kansas City sits right on the state line between Missouri and Kansas. Missouri passed an NIL statute. Kansas did not. And the, you know, the coaches on the college coaches on the Kansas side were quite upset over that and the idea that, you know, it really gave recruiting advantages to those schools. Until Congress does that, it's going to make it even more difficult, I think, in, in an area that's new for everyone. Scott, I've got to give you credit for your playing field pun. I think that that was well-timed <laughs> for this. I had to laugh at it. I think that the, um, our listeners are going to be laughing at that, too. So, Gene Paul, you talked about you've got this litigation focus, right? Those of us that are litigators are always thinking about litigation risk and how this plays out in the courts. Right now, it's early, right? We just had a policy change earlier this summer on NIL. But what are some of the issues you expect to be litigated? Because where there's money, there's litigation, right? You know, one of the things that occurred to me, and a lot earlier in my career, I was a federal prosecutor. And, you know, one of the axioms of that is money, you know, crime follows money. And what we've seen in pretty much every place, uh, you know, you had regulation of agents in the professional levels because you had so many people taking advantage of the opportunity to get some, some of other people's money. And I expect the same sort of thing as we sort out the playing field. As, as I think Scott noted earlier, a lot of these state statutes, Missouri's this way, requires a certain certification of people that are not lawyers to act as, as agents. But I know in Missouri, for example, that's going to be dependent upon adopting regulations that they haven't even started working on yet. And I think there's going to be a feeling out. And I'm just, you know, experience tells me that where there's a lot of money, as you noted, Susan, there's going to be people want, that want to take a, a share of it. So I think you're going to see some unfortunate circumstances where agents or, or advisors have taken advantage of student athletes. And whether it plays out in the criminal courts or civil cases, I think you'll see some of that. I think, as I mentioned earlier, you know, look where there are duties. If I represent somebody and I make a deal, does the player discover, hey, I got a lot less than I should have gotten? And where am I going to find a remedy for that and pursue litigation? You know, whether you call NCAA stuff litigation, it operates a little bit like that. And I think you'll certainly see everybody's going to be trying to sort this out. I think it's going to be a few years before we really have a good idea. It's just such a new thing for universities who aren't used to overseeing the process, the student athletes who aren't used to what the value. I think as Scott earlier said, businesses know what the value is because they this isn't really new to them. This is just a new supply of spokespeople. So they get it. But for, for most of the other people in, in this process, it's going to be new. And that means you're going to have problems that have to get sorted out. 
So gentlemen, let me ask you this. Is this, you know, we've got now a way for student athletes to receive payments through licensing of their NIL. Is this the end of the story with regard to payment or is this the tip of the iceberg in terms of ways student athletes have avenues for getting money for their NIL? Yeah, that's an interesting question. No, I, I think this is the beginning and not the end. For those of you out there who might have read the NCA Austin case and Justice Kavanaugh had a very strong dissent where he basically was saying, how can a business, and he thinks college athletics is a business, get away with making their business out of not paying their employees. I think the movement will continue towards other types of compensation for athletes. You know, coaches are making six, eight, $10 million a year. And even if an athlete's making 50,000 a year, that certainly seems small in comparison. There's uh, one of those bills in Congress, the College Athlete Right to Organize Act would actually amend the NLRA and make college athletes employees entitled to compensation. There was a district court decision last month, I think it was, out of Pennsylvania, the Johnson case, that allowed a, some student athletes to survive a motion to dismiss on their lawsuit asking that they be deemed employees under the FLSA. So I think there'll continue to be a, a movement toward athletes being seen as employees. And that, that, of course, will continue to narrow that gap between professional athletes and what we've referred in the past as you know, amateur athletes. Gene Paul, anything you'd like to add to that? No, I, I agree with Scott entirely on that. I mean, the NCAA is always kind of focused on what, you know, we don't have pay for play. We're going to preserve amateurism. If you look at the Austin decision, you get this sense in the majority opinion that there is a sensitivity toward the idea of maintaining a certain degree of amateurism so that this college sports can distinguish themselves from professional sports, but recognizing that, you know, unless Congress does something differently, that the antitrust laws and all that still apply. So as much as you might like to maintain that distinction, it becomes harder to do. And it's, it's hard to know exactly what, if they were presented. I mean, I think that had obviously some impact on the adoption of the NIL policy by the NCAA, both in reaction to what the states were doing, but reading between the lines, even though that case didn't deal with this particular issue, it's not hard to draw the line from the holding of that case to the idea that at least with respect to this, issue that it would carry on. But I, you know, it's just going to be real interesting to see how it develops. I mean, I have concerns over the long run of, you know, we all focus on the big schools and the amount of money they have and what they can spend and how they can compensate people. People forget that the large majority of the schools and colleges out there that are members, even the NCAA, let alone the NAIA, don't have those sorts of resources. And we also forget that while men's basketball and, and football drive huge revenues. What about the kids that are swimming and playing lacrosse and and unless you're in certain SEC schools, baseball, I mean, most of those are sports that are supported because of the excess revenues that come off of the revenue sports. And so all this extra money, where does it ultimately come from and who does it take away from? And I'm I worry about the student athletes and, and you know what we sometimes call the non-revenue or Olympic sports. I worry about the smaller colleges who can't afford to pay, you know, the, the, the amount of money that's going to the, you know, D1, top level D1 schools. Well, Scott and Jean Paul, this has been a fascinating discussion. And what I hear is that we're at the beginning of this and not the end. And so I'm hopeful that we're going to come back 
and talk about this as it evolves and keep our listeners updated because I think that everybody is really interested to watch to see how this turns out. Thank you both so much for your time. If you would like to connect with Scott or Jean Paul, please click on their bios in the description of this podcast. Also search the ELA website at ela.law where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library or access the ELA's exclusive global employer handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Susan Deniker. Thanks so much for listening.